This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, Ramadan Mubarak. Welcome to the minefield, uh, where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Uh, Waleed Ali is my name, Scott Stevens is my co-host, but I begin with that greeting because, of course, it is the start of Ramadan now, we're uh, a couple of days in, and that signals that we do something a bit different, usually, by taking, stepping aside from the normal flow of the show and just pretending the world doesn't exist for a while while we talk about I don't know, more... I was going to say more esoteric, but I think what I actually mean to no. say, Scott, is more eternal. Matters. Yes, nice, nice. Yeah, there's this... Was it Kierkegaard who, who said, don't pay attention to the time, pay attention to the eternities, or something like that? I mean, that sounds very Kierkegaardian. Kierkegaardian. I, yeah. I, I'm not too sure if he said precisely that. I mean, one of the things... Well, now I'm going to have to Google it, Scott. You see what you made me do? No, 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 no. Please don't Google it. Why? Because, because one of the many terrible things that's happened to Soren Kierkegaard, this great, crazy Danish philosophical misfit that philosophers ever since have tried to wonder, does he in fact have a place within the discipline of philosophy? And if so, what? Uh, much like another figure, by the way, we're going to be talking about a fair bit this morning. But one of the things that the internet has done to Soren Kierkegaard is they turned him into a purveyor of aphorisms and quotes. And if there's one thing that he absolutely did not do, it's to create uh, um, intelligible on their own aphorisms. He would drop in crazy contradictory statements or paradoxical statements. I mean, Kierkegaard, of course, is the great thinker of paradox uh, that demand that you stop, that you arrest your movement, that you try to take in to a very real extent how that paradox could in fact be the case. But if you just take the paradox on its own without everything that leads up to it and everything that follows then from it, you're getting at best a very, very distorted picture. Something like sort of Kierkegaardian gnomic wisdom, which um, if there was one thing he would have hated, it would have been precisely that. Sure. But I can confirm I did not hear that or whatever version of it that is accurate. Uh, okay. on, on social media. You were, you were Googling. Oh, oh, okay. I was about to say you weren't Googling while I was just talking there, were you? Oh, of course I was. But okay. I, didn't find, <laughs> I didn't find the, the particular quote. No, I heard it. It was actually in a, in a lecture. It was, it was a podcast. But, okay. um, but I think it's a really important idea, hmm. right? This sort of idea that we, as human beings, whether this is Kierkegaardian or not, you know what, I'll claim it. If it's, just go. If, if it's yep. not his, it's mine. All right. And everyone can quote me henceforth. <laughs> but I think this idea that we as human beings are slaves to the moment hmm. and that we kind of get swept along with the zeitgeist responding to every thing that occurs in our field of vision or appears in our field of vision in the moment that we're in rather than paying attention to those things that don't change so that, you know, we spend our lives just chasing after, you know, moths but we uh, become we're not we're not sufficiently anchored to those things that are true and eternal and unchanging about the human condition, mm. and as a result, we become ill-equipped for the times mm. because we we aren't anchored anywhere. I don't know if that's what Kierkegaard was trying to say, but I but I think that idea is a very powerful idea. It is a very powerful idea. I think the one thing. I don't know, Willie, this feels like a conversation that we keep coming back to again and again. And in many respects, I love it. And this might be a really good opportunity to sort of not resolve the differences between us, but to maybe try to nuance them, to try to tease them out a little bit further. I guess one of the one of the ways, and, and this also, I should say, may well be some of the vital differences, some of the vital theological differences for all of their similarities and overlap between, say, Islam on the one hand, and say Judaism and Christianity on the other. That one of the things I suppose I've always been very much attuned to, and certainly this is what attracts me most in some of the forms of philosophical thinking that nourish me most, is what maybe you might call the presence of the eternal or of the transcendent in precisely that which appears most immediately to us. So if you think, for instance, of certain wonderful trajectories of Jewish thought that locate the transcendent with a capital T in the face, in the need of the neighbor 
as they appear to you in their moment of need. Uh, And that that moment of appearance isn't the appearance of something transitory that maybe needs to be temporarily addressed before one gets on to the greater business of life or of devotion or of worship, but rather a moment of worship in and of itself, in the very moment of attending to that person, of answering their need, that in a very real way, God or the transcendent is present in that neighbor, in the face of the other who needs you, to whom you are trying to attend. To me, that's a very, very powerful idea. And when it comes to times like this, when we're interrupting the normal rhythms of everyday life, I think one of the important ways of thinking about it isn't that we are ignoring the everyday. And I, I don't think you're saying this, but I'm really interested in you trying to sort of push back or maybe not even push back, but sort of, you know, tell me uh, where and how this dovetails. But I think one of the things we try to do in seasons like this, where we interrupt the rhythms of the everyday, isn't to try to attain or to try to pursue something like an untrammeled purity or to try to leave behind the dirtiness of the world around us, but rather to try to interrupt the rhythms that impel us to try to adopt certain forms of conformity. This is just the way things have to be. And instead, give us the opportunity to adopt other rhythms by which we attune ourselves to what someone like Henry David Thoreau or Ludwig Wittgenstein or Simone Weil called in various variations our real need, life's true necessities, what the soul really needs in order to thrive. And I guess you're right. I mean, I I think you're absolutely right that the way that we live, the hurriedness of the way that we live, the transitory nature of the way that we live means that we are caught up too much in mere responsiveness to what is immediately around us. We kind of skip or slide or glide across the surface of things as they appear to us. Whereas there are, in fact, I think, these reminders all around us to stop, to hesitate, to, to, to completely um, uh, inhabit what Simone Weil beautifully called an interval of hesitation before something that really demands our attention, something that really even warrants what we might even call our worship. In other words, our full undivided attention at this moment. So it's, it's times like this, I think, where we're not being asked to, to forsake embodied existence or the world of the everyday with its complexity and its dirtiness and its complicities, but rather to try to find in the middle of that what our real need is, what it is that our life, you used the term before, where our anchor really is, that thing that lays a claim on us that gives us then the ability, gives us the opportunity to discover uh, something that gives us ongoing nourishment, that lets us plug into something that is true, that is abiding. Um, uh, but I think that is not discovered apart from the demands of the everyday. But the real moral challenge is how can this be discovered in and through the very reality of, you know, and the complexity of bodily life? Yeah, and no, I think we're saying the, the same thing. The, the point is that in engaging with the everyday, there is a difference between one who is simply pushed around by whatever prevailing wind exists yep. yeah, and one who is able to uh, embody a kind of stillness in the face of those winds hmm. um, precisely because the things that they, that guide them or the things that, um, help constitute their character are based on those things that are deep and eternal rather than that which is fashionable. Hmm. And maybe fashionableness, I'm not sure if that's a word. Um, I'm making up a lot of things today. No, I love it. Um, I think maybe fashionableness is is the crux of, of the antonym here, right? That it's this idea of constantly chasing after the zeitgeist, what am I think meant to think now? Okay, all right. And what, and what what am I meant to do now? And the the greatest culprit in this, apart from social media, which I think amplifies this, is probably news. Yeah, it's probably it, it's not the mere fact of news. I, I I would 
guess that news in some form or other has always existed um, alongside human existence, but it's more the place given to news, the sort of implied imperative of news, which is that you must do something and something must happen now. And almost as though that which has come before is suddenly rendered irrelevant or at least less relevant, and what is relevant is that which is happening now. Hmm. In other way, I think... And, and sorry, Waleed, can I just say that that thing which must happen now as the result of whatever it is you just came across or one comes across in consuming the news, that thing that must happen now may well simply be a flashing or a flaring of emotion. It, it, mm. And, and, and I mean, that is one of the things that a news-driven and social media-saturated age has done is it's elevated feeling really, really strongly about something to a kind of moral act. Yes, that's right. But also in, well, I was going to say in the knowledge, maybe it's not in the knowledge, maybe it's unacknowledged, that, that the fleetingness of it, right? So you can be really fired up about some particular thing, but that will be displaced in a day, a week, an hour, maybe it's a month, maybe it's a few months. What there isn't is much that is being asked beyond that flash of anger or mm. beyond that expression of, of passion because there's nothing uh, necessarily that's anchoring it that is durable, that, that lasts beyond sort of the current moment. Um, anyway, this seems like a very elaborate way of setting up the show, which is really all well, we've done so far. Well, but, well but, no, because no, I mean, what, what, what in fact we're doing, sorry to, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Willie, but what we are in fact doing is not just setting up this show, we're actually setting up the series. Yes, well, that, that's, um, what I, that's what I meant to say. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. sorry. No, no, that's right. no, no, you didn't jump in, I just misspoke. But yeah, that's, that's, that's really the idea of, of us doing this. We, I was going to say every year, it's not every, we didn't do it last year because of COVID, um, mm. where I think we weren't actually... Re- broadcasting during Ramadan, were we? We had <laughs> exactly a whole lot right. of shows that we had to pre-record ahead of the lockdown and then they went out. And then I think we did one show on Ramadan maybe at the very end of it or something like that. We did. Um, but the last few years at the very least we've done a range of series. I can't really remember all of their names, but <laughs> I remember that we've done them. But the basic idea is we don't really pay attention to what's happening in the news, except maybe uh, along the way as an aside if it fits into a particular discussion that we're having. So uh, what is this? The broadcasting version of fasting, I suppose. I'm not really sure what you call it, but that's what we're doing. Can I can I ask you a question? I, I want to go a little bit off script here, although I oh. think this has everything to do with what it is that we're doing over the next four weeks. Okay. Um, so let me just begin by saying that one of the images that has long nourished me, I mean, before my my interest in and my passion for moral philosophy. Uh, I did a tremendous amount of work in in, uh, Semitic philology and uh, especially sort of uh, Hebrew and Aramaic texts. And one of the the images that has long struck me, and I'll confess, Willie, there's barely a week that goes by that I don't think about it in one form or another. It's the very beginning of the Hebrew book of Psalms where two persons are characterized – Uh, The person who is just or the person who is righteous is characterized as a tree who sends down roots, which is planted next to flowing streams. There are winds, there are movements, there are demands, and yet the righteous person, the person who meditates on these texts is like an immovable tree. The unrighteous person, the person who is swayed by every opinion, by politics and whatever, is instead like chaff. And it's, it's one of these wonderful, wonderful, elaborate Hebrew poems that does not assign a single verb to the righteous person. The righteous person is characterized precisely by immobility, mm-hmm. by non-movement, by non-activity, because the place that nourishes them is known. So they simply have to be in that place. Whereas the person who is not righteous is constantly moving, always thrown about. There are four different verbs that are used in the space of a couple sentences to describe that person. And it just strikes me. I mean, it it seems like a very, very – it seems like a very odd way of describing the moral life, that the moral life is in many respects defined by a kind of stationary quality, by a deep contentment knowing – 
uh, that which nourishes and where what nourishes truly lies. But here's my, here's my question, Walid. Human movement, distraction, being caught up in the life of the everyday, moving from demand to demand, simply responding to what is required of us rather than finding deeper nourishment. These are all, I think, various forms of forgetting, of forgetting what really nourishes, the things that really give life meaning. What's your take on the basis for? I mean, what is this underlying condition? Why are we, as embodied creatures, so given to forgetting that which means most. What's your read on it? Because I'm not sure it's as simple as forgetting, except that um, perhaps at the level of society, there's been a kind of collective amnesia, almost a determined forgetting, a purging of knowledge and information. Information is actually the wrong thing. Mm. Knowledge, let's call it knowledge. I suppose that's just another way of saying something that we've said a lot on this show, which is one of the consequences of liberal society and particularly an increasingly secularizing liberal society is the disappearance of any kind of moral framework on which there is consensus. There isn't really a commonly accepted epistemic frame. There isn't uh, some kind of consistent or commonly accepted meta-narrative. And in the end, what happens, certainly at the level of society, and then I would say it filters down to the level of each of us as individuals, is that the presence of meta-narratives that are anchoring just withers away. Hmm. So what you're really doing moment to moment is responding to things in a way that's trying to do all of the work of making sense of the moment while compiling some kind of meta-narrative on the run that allows you to make sense of the next moment. But because you're doing it on the run, because that meta-narrative isn't in place in any kind of firm way, because there's no faith in it, or in anything, you're brought undone or shifted along by the next thing because it can't be in place at the time that the next event comes along. Right? Hmm. One of the things I, you know, to take this out of the realm we're talking about, the register of kind of moral formation and look at it in the realm of, I don't know, something like social explanation, you have a similar phenomenon, right? The best social ideas or the best social theories Um, And we can have an argument about how useful social theories are at all, but let's assume they're useful for a moment. The best social theories seem to be the ones that require the least amendment, right? That in the face of new events are not perturbed because they are easily able to accommodate them within their canons already. The ones that you know are struggling are the ones that constantly have to be updated, because things just keep happening that either challenge or falsify some aspect of it, right? As you can apply, apply it into, in scientific theories and all kinds of things, right? And I think it's a similar sort of thing for human beings. If we have some kind of meta narrative that allows us to go into the world in a way that means that we are not blown over by the world, then we're on to something. But I would say that I was going to say liberal society. Maybe what I mean is late liberal society mm-hmm. um, and particularly uh, the secularized version of it that that we have. I think it's just very bad at generating those things. It's, it, it's probably even actively hostile to those things. You would then, you know, I think open yourself to an argument that says, well, there's very good reason for that and here are all the benefits of that and so on and so forth. Maybe that's a separate argument. We can have that conversation perhaps another day, but... That's what I observe as a phenomenon. Hmm. This is so interesting to me. And this, again, points, I think, to the vast difference in many ways to the way that you and I think. Because one of the uh, – let me just say, we really need to bring in the guest. Let me just say really, really quickly, though, I think one of the fascinating things here, one of the reasons for – and I I would probably want to insist on the the notion of forgetting, that we forget what matters most – Uh, almost as a matter of habit, but also as a way of cultivating what Iris Murdoch wonderfully called the fat, relentless ego. It seems to me that that whether it be uh, at the level of society writ large and certainly in our moral interactions with one another, there is a kind of cultivation of or a pandering to the demands of the ego. uh, um, But that's what happens in the absence of a meta-narrative. Well, yes, yes, uh, that's exactly right. But I think the way I mean, it can happen with a meta-narrative too, by the way. yeah. Yeah, true. But I think one of the things here, it's the difference in so many respects 
between self-assertiveness, the desire to impose oneself and to find one's vision of the world in the world, and then to impose one's telos, one's desire for things to be a particular way in the fabric of interpersonal relationships. Whereas one of, uh, to, to my mind, the great counterpoint to this is, again, this moment of hesitation before the immeasurably complex reality of the person before us and of the world before us, and instead allowing the complexity of the world to address us and to pose certain demands of us and of our attention, uh, uh, such that the ego can't help but shrink and become, in a very real way, silent before our submission to the reality of the world around us. And I think what this recognizes then is a kind of twofold complexity, that the person who addresses me and the world in front of me is amazingly complex. And so I can't rush to a kind of moral judgment that hammers that person or hammers that world into the way that I think it should be. But at the same time, I am unbelievably complex, that I have contemptuousness and laziness and inattentiveness and cruelty lingering in me at the same time as I hope maybe I have attentiveness and mercy and generosity and graciousness. And depending on what I put into myself, that's the side of me that's going to come out most prominently. And so I think in a a very real way, what we do when we are confronted with the complexity of the world and the complexity of others Uh, then gives rise to a particular version of the self, which is either inattentive uh, or which is hopefully attentive, gracious, and everything else. You're talking at a kind of macro-social level, and I think that that still absolutely holds. To my mind, one of the things that we're really trying to cultivate over the next four weeks is what we also do at this interpersonal, at the level of the moral reality of another person and of the world as they present themselves. So you're calling it forgetfulness. I think I'm suggesting it's something more active than that, perhaps even more aggressive than that. Uh, Yes. Well, 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 yes. Yes, I, I think that's right. I think what forgetfulness is, though, is a form of pandering to the ego. Yeah. That's what I think it's, yeah. Hmm. I have to think about that. I, th- I accept the pandering to the ego point. I'm just not sure I want to like um, sweep that all up under an umbrella of forgetfulness. Okay. But I'll get back to you on that. Look, I probably won't, but my intention at this point is that I might <laughs> one day if I remember to. Oh, no, I've got back to forgetfulness. <laughs> this is going very badly. We should say, you are listening to The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN as you might be doing right now. You can catch the podcast anytime on the ABC Listen app or by following The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. Um, This is a different sort of a minefield. We're clustering the next few episodes that happen to land in the month of Ramadan under the broad umbrella term of neglected practices, basically things that we've stopped doing that we should be doing. (laughs) Is that Mm, the bluntest mm. way you could say it? And today's topic, as I think Scott has manoeuvred us towards, is attentiveness. We should be attentive to a guest at this point. Scott? Uh, Yes. This is a particular delight for me because uh, anyone who's been listening to this show for a while knows that Simone Weil is a figure who has nourished me deeply and continues to pose an ongoing moral challenge to me and to the way that I think. And so, you know, if you don't like the way that I'm posing it on you, on listeners to this show, well, you know, tough. Because uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to stop. And that's what makes this guest such a, a wonderful delight. Rebecca Roselle Stone is Associate Professor of Philosophy and Religion at the University of North Dakota. She's co-author with Lucian Stone of a fabulous book called Simone Weil and Theology, and she's editor of a book called Simone Weil and Continental Philosophy. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Well, thank you so much for having me on The Minefield. This is really a pleasure for me. And, you know, speaking of being in awe of the complexity of the world and those who are before us where the ego shrinks, I'm feeling that right now. (laughs) (laughs) I've been trying to gather the threads of conversation and, and, you know, think how can I be most responsible and responsive to the two of you? It's this is such a delightful conversation to have, I think, about attention. It's it rarely happens happens. So. Yeah, I think she's well, look, saying uh, there were so many threads because we were incoherent, Scott. That's my well, well uh, that was that was precisely how how I read that. And, and look, I, I should apologize to you, Rebecca. You've you've got a very very difficult task because what we've just done 
over the last 20 whatever minutes is we've been trying to lay out some of the themes, some of the threads that we're going to be pulling on and pursuing throughout the next four weeks. We are starting with attentiveness for for a very deliberate reason, because I think inattentiveness is in so many respects at the root, at the basis, at the base of many of our moral and social ills. This was something, of course, that Simone Weil was uncommonly conscious of. And it's one of the reasons that she elevated attention to to a, a kind of neglected practice that we neglect both to our detriment, but also more crucially to the detriment of others. So why don't you just sort of help us? Let's go back to the very beginning. What is it that Simone Weil means by attention? And, and I guess just to give you a nice big flag I guess one of the things that's always moved me about the way that she describes or understands attention is that it seems to encapsulate both our orientation toward the divine, but also our proper orientation towards one another. I'm wondering if you can sort of help us begin to think through how that could be true at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And and you're right. And actually, it, it's something I wanted to talk about in relation to the story you brought up about the righteous person being like an unmovable tree, um, because I think there's certainly that aspect in her notion of attention that is there, that it's about dwelling, a kind of stability, it's, it's a waitingness, it's a vigilance, as we know. But at the same time, there is an activity, there is a verb for her in attention. Mm. Um, so the way I think about her, her idea of attention is there is a kind of creativity, but also receptivity in this faculty. So a person would have definitely an open orientation, and that could be toward the divine and certainly toward other people if you don't believe in the divine um, and toward the world in general. So there's an openness there, but it's a kind of, again, this awaiting uh, for the givenness of the world, if you will, to reveal itself. Um, so not being hasty in search of answers, not you know, looking for the quick bits and bites um, that are so satisfying to the ego, um, not wanting the answers quickly or the end of the sentence to be filled in hastily, right? It's, um, I think she uses this metaphor of, you know, when we're writing, it's like holding the pen to the paper and just waiting with a kind of openness to the world for the words to just drop out of the pen onto the paper so that we're almost a vehicle, Right, and this is where it does get mystical and religious, right? If we're a vehicle, it's vehicle for what? For the divine or the transcendent or whatever you want to call it to work through us into the world and towards others. And so, and this is where it becomes not just passive, right? I mean, you get that sense with being a vehicle or sort of dwelling in the present, but there is in that word attend, right? From the Latin ad tendere, it's to stretch. So there's, I always think of it as that erotic tension, right? It's a reaching toward, it's a stretching toward going beyond oneself, out towards the world, out towards others. So it's not just quietism, right? It's not just waiting and seeing, you know, what's going to fall into my lap today. But really, it's, it's hard to describe because it is a passive activity, but we're open to the world at the same time that we're reaching and stretching toward it with a kind of hospitality, an invitation. Um, speak to me so that I can respond appropriately. So that's, that's what I think, and I know that's a long way of saying it, but her idea of attention has that kind of paradox about it, this active passivity or a stretching towards, but but still being willing to dwell in the moment and in the present without escaping into the future um, or into an imagined past, like mm. nostalgia. And also Can without I just, seeking oh, release. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's so right. it, exactly. part of that. I think is existence under tension, and and that you're comfortable yes. with that tension. Yes, exactly right. It's it's not, I mean, precisely for her, it's not being in a space of comfort. It does demand a kind of decenteredness of self because we're, I guess, in Levinasian terms, we're going beyond the self, we're opening up to the other. Um, and that feels like a tension. It feels like going into a strange land. 
and being in exile, perhaps. And one of the other things I wanted to say, you know, and maybe apropos of Ramadan, we we start to attend, I think, more when we experience a kind of void within ourselves, a kind of emptiness or hunger. It could be a literal hunger, brokenness, deprivation, or deviation from the status quo, right? It's one of those phenomenological points that when, you know, you don't notice things when things are fine. It's easy to be inattentive and take things for granted and be very instrumental in the world when we have everything that's status quo, everything's healthy, everything's good in fullness and abundance. But the minute that we lose something or break something or yeah, lose someone, we feel that internal void, And that's what brings our attention in a way to the phenomena that we haven't really given it before. And as I understand it, that's one of the main reasons for fasting, right? Is it helps that kind of remembrance of our partiality and our limitations, our dependency upon the divine. We often forget that when we're, when our bellies are full. Mm. This is is wonderful. Uh, And I think one of the things that you point to there, Rebecca, is in many respects the indispensability of the physical here. I mean, for, for mm-hmm. the reality of hunger to be something that doesn't simply point beyond some kind of physical reality, but if you like points towards what is most essential in physical reality, namely our need of something that is greater than the self-sufficiency in which too many of us take some kind of comfort or rest. This, uh, this I think, and, and I, I love the way that you described Simone Weil's notion of attention. It's bringing together of passivity and activity. But I think one of the, one of the really, or, I mean, possibly, possibly, one of the other nice ways of thinking about this might even be through a detour through someone like uh, Luce Irigaray, who described it as, as the cultivation of the space between two people. And if you think about the cultivation of the space between two people as a condition of listening, of patience, of attending to one another without rushing to the point, without trying to simply use the person as an obstacle that we need to get over or get around in order to get what we really want, but also that refuses to reduce the other person to a thing within my universe of things, but instead that cultivates the space between us, waiting for the other person to fill that space with what it is to which I need to attend. I think this is where so much of our egocentrism really is thoroughly corrupting, that we tend to take voids as opportunities, as invitations for us to fill it. Mm. Uh, Awkward silences tend to be something that cause us great discomfort or, oh my God, is this other person waiting for me to say something intelligent? Quick, I need to fill it to prove that I'm not a fraud. Whereas this cultivation of a space for attentiveness that is inviting the reality of the other person to come into my world and become a reality within the way that I see the world. I mean, there is a passivity that goes along with that. I mean, there, there, there is a kind of, there, there is a waiting, there is a not deliberately not doing something. But there's also tremendous discipline that goes into... I'm not going to rush in to fill this space. I'm not going to try to prove my bona fides or my credentials to this other person by saying something witty or, or, or whatever. I mean, there is this kind of coming together of the invitation to the other and also the relinquishment of the most immediate demands of the self, which cannot help but cause what Murdoch called the fat, relentless ego, hopefully, hopefully over time, to begin to shrivel and to take a kind of second place role. Absolutely. You're so right, too, that it's this letting silence be sometimes, uh, letting that tension hang in the air is 
something that's hard for a lot of us to cultivate. And I think in particular, maybe certain cultures. For myself, I grew up in the American South, and I don't know if it was just my family. I, I tend to think that it's something Southern about this in, in the culture, but we we just almost talk over each other there. It's it's terrifying to have any kind of silence um, where, where I was born and raised. And so I grew up thinking that to make people feel comfortable, right, to be a good person, to be nice, um, you fill in all the air, you even complete their sentences if it seems like they're struggling to, to find something to say. And that's just what you do as someone who's really, I think they would understand it as being attentive. But, you know, when I moved out into the world and started to certainly learn about Simone Weil and, and be around other people and other kind of cultures, I realized the extent to which that can be inhibiting um, as much as we think it's a comfort to people. And it might be on some level a comfort, but that which is comforting uh, is not always, I think, good. Right, mm. certainly for for Simone Weil, and it's funny you brought up a rigoret. I just wanted to touch on this too because you're right. I think that holding that space open to invite the other in, it's so important to this understanding of attention. But also, one thing that a rigoret emphasized that I find is a common association with attention is the visual primacy, and so Rigoret was critical of that. Right? She mm. thought we give too much primacy to this sense of vision. Um, and certainly when we're thinking about attention, we always tend to think of it as like, I'm, you know, it's a looking at something. I'm watching I'm something to. very carefully, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and frankly, even Simone Weil, right, she used that metaphor of looking, the regard, as being about attention as opposed to the consumptive orientation or the eating orientation. But for a rigoret, I think, you know, we might consider how she talks about touch. And I know here she was going off of Merleau-Ponty as well, but with touch as opposed to vision, we're more vulnerable. You don't have that dichotomy between subject and object so neatly defined. It's, it's very ambiguous suddenly. And when you're literally in touch with someone, right, there is that ability to be, I think, compassionate or em empathic in a way that's much more real. You're not just thinking about or watching them undergo something. You're feeling them. Um, and that involves you, that implicates you in a way that just, yeah, having the spectacle doesn't. Um, and so I started thinking about like, what are some of these attentional practices? Because I know this discussion was about that too. And if we think of attention as being something that's much more bodily, as opposed to just visual, well, you could think of gestures like certain prayer practices or yoga for certain people. For myself, I've taken up golf and I realize how much attention that demands. Um, <laughs> or it could be, you know, cuddling a pet or a loved one even. But, you know, I think there's ways that we might reconsider attention as being, you know, literally in touch um, as opposed to just sort of reading, watching or even just listening. It's, it calls to mind all that whole mindfulness movement, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Because, well, I've never done those practices, but the idea of feeling things, paying attention to other senses other than sight seems to be a theme that comes up quite regularly in that sort of context. Um, as I listen to this, I can't help then but project it onto the world that we inhabit. Mm. And I wonder, Scott, is the unavoidable conclusion here that media culture is inescapably egotistical because what's <laughs> you're laughing already this is good um what what is just about impossible to do within a media construct so as you know a broadcasting environment or something like that is to be attentive to listen to allow words to gather in silence and then to respond in good time. Like that time is bent in a media environment so that any kind of silence is a problem unless it's a very pregnant silence. That is a silence that is shouting louder than yeah. any words that might fill it. So given that, every silence must be filled. It is usually filled, and here we go into, you know, Borgia's criticism of television particularly, but like yes. it is filled with 
predetermined thoughts that everybody, all the participants bring to the discussion that is taking place so that there's no real thinking that's going on. It's just, I think, what he called received ideas. That's right. That you then just perform at the relevant moment. If what I've said is true about media culture, that it's inescapably inattentive and that it's inescapably egotistical for that reason, following your um, descriptions of it, uh, of attentiveness and ego, by the way, not media, Mm. then what are we to make of phenomena like social media that it seems to me take media culture and smear it across every boundary that exists in our lives, turning more or less every interaction into one that does not admit of silence, where listening is difficult and a price is to be paid really for doing it, Um, where the premium is on the production of content, the production of words, the production of images, uh, whatever it might be, and things are made highly performative such that we cannot, for all the engagement, which is kind of one of the buzzwords of this um, subculture, for all our engagement, we cannot really be attentive because we cannot afford to be within that context. It, to use another Bourdieuism, it would erode the capital that we seek in that field. Yeah. Uh, and so we dare not. Well, Ed, I can only say yes, absolutely, at every point with all my heart. I mean, that is, that, that is you, have, you have encapsulated, I think, one of the truly profound and almost, to some extent, without tremendous effort, insoluble moral problems of our time. It is interesting, just by the way, Pierre Bourdieu got his idea of received ideas from Gustave Flaubert, who's one of the great, and it seems to me, one of the most poignant crit- uh, critics of a then early media culture, uh, which is media as fashion. Uh, opinion as something that one wears. In other words, opinion becomes an extension of the ego. Opinion is something that you wear as a weapon or as a way of uh, demonstrating your your with it in the worldedness. Uh, you, the fact that you are super or hyper informed and super and hyper literate, which takes uh, us to or, the fashionableness that we were talking about before. Precisely, of sort of responding being reactive to the zeitgeist rather than being anchored in some way, right? I think that's that, uh, that's exactly right. And there are all sorts of things that we need to qualify here, and I suspect we're going to probably do most of these qualifications in our next episode in this series. <laughs> <clears throat> but but it, is, it is worth saying that I think this very terror of inarticulacy or of not having something to say when the one thing that is always demanded of you, if you exist in this space, is to have something to say and then to have that thing to say being the thing that is expected of you to say. In other words, that's where the received idea comes in. But I think the, the other thing, Willie, that's so important here is that media now acts as a continuous series of sugar hits that we glide along the top of thing to thing to thing to thing, each one eliciting and designed to elicit a degree of engagement, quote-unquote, of emotion. And by the way, if you want to know what attentiveness is, it's the opposite of engagement. We could just do a whole show on, on that. But, but you constantly have to stay high and yet superficially on this sugar high. And so the one thing you can never do is to simply come down into the terrain of what one then must do about it as a matter of course, or how one's life must look different as a matter of course. And it seems to me that one of the real ways in which we are suffering from this constantly skimming along the top of stimuli, of uh, this inhabiting of the world of engagement, is we have lost in many respects the capacity to simply settle down with one thing that sequentially, that over a period of time, ought to demand all of our attention to the point that, it, that our lives become different as a result. I mean, to some extent, in many ways, I think that can be a novel or a quote-unquote long read. But, but it also means the particular attentiveness to the person that is there before me in all their proximity and humanness without the allure without the temptation of these other stimuli um, banging at our door, ushering us uh, into that, that more shallow world of, of sugar hits. 
If uh, you've just joined us, you are listening to The Minefield. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Our guest today is Rebecca Roselle-Stone, who's an Associate Professor of Philosophy and Religion at the University of North Dakota. This is the first episode of our Neglected Practices series, which we're doing throughout the month of Ramadan, which has just begun. Uh, today's topic is attentiveness, uh, and I hope you're paying attention because uh, we may have tested you at various points uh, up to now. Um, Re- Rebecca, can I take the observations we've just made then about the nature of media culture and ask you a question that's a bit unfair? Sure. Is there, if what we've said there is true, is there a moral way to be a broadcaster? Hmm. <laughs> what a great question. I think, and, and I promise I'm not kissing up here, but I think exactly what the two of you are doing <laughs> comes to my mind as, um, you know, the, the kind of media that could cultivate attentiveness sitting with an idea or, you know, a set of ideas that are closely related for for a while. Uh, you don't see that in a lot of media, but precisely what, what you are doing is precisely that, I think. Well, that's very kind um, of you, but it's also inaccurate because we would not allow a massive silence. Scott, I think we can both confess. If there was a big silence, one of us would jump in and fill it with word salad or something. <laughs> Wouldn't we? Probably, probably, but probably the equivalent of the kind of silence that we would need to engage in in order to be moral in the sense that you're using it is something like either I don't know or this is what I thought and I think I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, these would be, if you like, the performative forms of silence that could nevertheless be meaningful in this kind of medium. Okay, all right. So this, but it's still a bit compromised, right? And you can't just say I don't know all the time to everything and call that we a could, show, right? We could try. Well, you could try. All right, maybe we'll do that. <laughs> maybe our next show will just be us sitting around not knowing <laughs> things um, and see how that goes. All right, but then take a show like this, which is a highly uh, um, idiosyncratic show, I think, out of it, Rebecca. I'm thinking of a broadcaster who is, I don't know, doing a talkback radio type show where they have to engage with news and issues and so on. They're, they're the mediator of a forum for public exchange. Is there a moral way to do it? I think it's challenging, um, especially with the demands of capital on the news media now, keeping people's attention, well, what's called attention, I don't think it's genuine attention, but keeping them tuned in at least um, is going to be a real challenge with the kind of paradigm that we've been talking about that attention demands. When you were talking earlier in, in your introduction about the kind of nowness of the news, elevating feeling to moral acts and the sort of fleetingness of, of the news. I was thinking about Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, of course, and how he described that now, this paradigm of, of the news media in particular, where, you know, you're, one minute you're listening about a genocide and it might be for three minutes if you're lucky, Right, you're getting the in-depth coverage for those three minutes, and then you go to commercial break in which you know you learn about the new reality TV show that's going to be coming on, or you know the the latest um, fast food chain or what have you, and so it has this kind of flattening effect across all the phenomena where nothing's really serious and there's no gravitas, we don't fully attend to any of it. But what strikes me as interesting is. Well, we read the news, we watch the news, and maybe reading maybe reading would be a way where we're approximating something like attention, especially in something like where The Guardian has the long read, so you spend a good amount of time, you know, mulling over um, some issue. But even if we're just reading headlines, I think we're still feeling affected, and this is something I've been struggling with in, in my research. It, it does feel like there is a kind of moral fatigue that happens. Like we're somehow, you know, these events, it feels like they're entering us. Um, we're being penetrated in some kind of way, which makes me think there's a level of attentiveness there. Like there's a porousness in us because but, but we feel... that can happen with emotional response, right? If, you, if you're called to a highly emotive reaction, I'm not even going to say response, reaction to something, Hmm. it's still penetrating. Yeah. Are we presuming emotion is somehow outside of 
attention. I'm, I'm not conflating them, but I, I think attention is certainly has its emotive qualities. No, but okay, so I show you the three-minute thing on the genocide or you read the headline on the genocide. Yeah. You're emotionally penetrated for a moment and yeah. then you read about Kim Kardashian's divorce. Yeah. And your emotional state changes. Now, in each moment, you've been emotionally penetrated. There, some level of porousness must exist because you're not simply like a block of concrete and these, um, n- these headlines or stories aren't just bouncing off you. They're going in to some extent. But I'm not sure we would call either of those things attentiveness. That's true. And maybe it's just been my assumption that after having that kind of experience, you walk away fairly unfatigued. It just, Mm. everything feels basically light. There's been no real settling of any issue within you because it has been so, uh, you know, transitory (laughs) and, you know, fleeting in terms of the stories and the advertisements. So nothing really hits home. But I think, uh, sorry, sorry, Rebecca, but I think to some extent that's precisely the point, isn't it? That as soon as you move on to the next story, it's Mm -hmm. that very act of moving on that cannot help but have the flattening out effect. Whereas if one then takes the heightened emotional state, let's just call it nothing more than that, the heightened emotional state that's elicited, that's evoked by a particular story, by something, let's call it real in the world, imposing itself upon our consciousness. It would be the decision to stop at that moment and to embody, to inhabit the hesitation before that. If that is the case, how must my life be different? What am I going to do apart from feel strongly? That I think is where being aroused by a story, again, let's call it nothing more than that. That would be, I think, where being aroused by a story turns into something like this is going to become a moral reality in my life. That's that's right. I mean, Vey is, for instance, adamant that we not just end up feeling warmth of heart or pity or, and I think you could say here, emotion, right? And that simple kind of way toward the things that we learn in the world or that we're confronted with uh, from others. But it has to go beyond that. And she thinks if we're being truly attentive, there are actions that come of that, not even from our own will, but just because we can't help but do otherwise. So she gives an example, right? If someone who's truly attentive encounters, you know, a person who is is hungry, we're not going to be able to help ourselves but to give them some food. So yeah, I think there's something demanded, but it's not that, you know, at least for her, that we would have to intend it it just happens as a result of the attention. And we can look at her life and I think see that her life seemed to mirror that in many ways, right? She noticed that her French countrymen and women were starving at different times and at the end of her life living on rations. And so she herself said, I can't eat food as a result of knowing this. This knowledge has is preventing me from being able to consume food. And even though the nurses and doctors tried to get her to eat because she had tuberculosis, she said, I can't do it. And she died as a result. So I, I think most of us, certainly myself, I don't, I don't fill those shoes. I'm not that kind of attentive. Um, but where it exists truly, I think that would be the result. You're right. Not just mm. pity, not just a kind of, uh, I feel bad I'm going to tweet about it or post on Instagram about it and then move on with my day, but there would be something that really comes of that concretely. Mm. Mm. You could tweet about it and not move on with your day by keeping on tweeting about it. And I think, <laughs> but, and that's not a trivial point. Like I think this is the, this is, that's the outlet. And so Scott, you're looking, I think there's a crisis of outlets. Um, yeah. As much right. Anyway, we have no more time. Uh, I'd like to believe that we could just go to the news now and they would sit there in silence for five minutes instead <laughs> of doing the news headlines, but I don't think that's about to happen. We, uh, we must go, I'm afraid, because time is up. Uh, Rebecca Roselle Stone, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Religion at the University of North Dakota, is our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. Rebecca, thank you very much for helping us out today. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you on The Minefield next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.